if you can create a connection with your child so they can be vulnerable with you and say, mom, I didn't do my homework because it's so confusing and it's so hard and, and I'm just exhausted. And, and I just, and whatever those things are without the fear that you're going to say, well, but kitty, you got to do it. Cause that's what the teacher assigned. That's not what your kid needs to hear right now. It's not that we don't have to figure out how to help Johnny do his work. Of course we do. But right now, we need Johnny to show up with us. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? I don't know about you, but I'm feeling a little impulsive and a little oppositional at the moment. And to that end... No commercials, because I can do whatever I want with this podcast. So we're going to jump right into it. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Cindy Goldrich, the founder of Pathways to Success Coaching. Cindy is a mental health counselor and ADHD coach who has been working in the field for over 15 years. She's the author of two books on parenting children with ADHD and her books and training programs have been translated into multiple languages. In addition to working with parents, Cindy also trains ADHD coaches and other professionals. In this episode, Cindy and I discuss ways to distinguish between supporting and enabling our children. Cindy shares her three ends of praise, and we talk about the importance of connection and setting appropriate expectations when managing family dynamics. All right. Let's get rolling. My name is Cindy Goldrich. I am the founder of PTS Coaching, Pathways to Success, because I think all kids are taking a different journey. Their journey is not just straight through. I'm a mental health counselor, and I'm also a board-certified ADHD coach. I've been working in this field for about 15 years. I started out working with the high school and the college kids because I really found that this population really needed support and understanding their journey and why they were struggling so much to be organized and manage their time and manage their materials and get started on their work. But you know what I found? That parents don't know what parents don't know. And parents really need an understanding and education about their child's challenges beyond just, yeah, it's hyperactivity, it's impulsivity, it's inattentiveness. And so I decided to put parents at the center of my work. And I wrote a workshop about 15 years ago that I am giving to this day called Calm and Connected, Parenting Children and Teens with ADHD and Executive Function Challenges. Parents need support. It's not easy parenting a child. And when you have a complex child, and you know this, it's even more complex. We don't know, am I enabling my child or supporting my child when I go and I help? And what kind of boundaries can I set that are going to encourage growth and not just feel restrictive and and whatnot? What kind of consequences can I create that are going to build skills 
and not just be punitive. I'm not into the whole sticker charts and rewards and punishments and all that other stuff. My common connected workshop series, we don't even talk about consequences until session six because we need to first build relationship. We need to calm down the family system. We need to understand why is my good kid who could pack up his backpack easily if he wanted to, why isn't he doing it? You know, why would I tell him, you know, go upstairs, get your backpack, your shoes, your tennis racket, and come downstairs. And why is he listening to me? Because what do you think the, the feeling is that most parents have when that happens? Oh, yeah, it's fear, it's anxiety, it's frustration. It depends on the parent, but probably all of those to some level. Yeah, I would say that. And I would also say frustration, anger, my kid's being defiant. Why doesn't he listen? So it's this whole emotional response, right? But what if I told you, and I know you know this, but you know, when I'm working with parents, what if I told you that working memory is a thing? And I don't know, maybe it'd be helpful for your audience if I explain what I mean when I say working memory. Yeah, please do. I, I had a conversation about working memory with the cashier at the supermarket yesterday because he asked what I did. And I was like, I do ADHD work. And he was like, oh, I have ADHD. <laughs> and then like ran directly to working memory. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, the way I explain it is there are really three kinds of memory. There's short-term memory. I need juice, eggs, and milk, right? There's long-term memory. You remember your, your childhood phone number? I remember mine. And then there's working memory. And working memory is kind of using your brain search engine. It's integrating what do you already know and what's in front of you. So working memory is needed for so many things. It's needed to follow the flow of a conversation. Wait, what do you say? What am I feeling about that? Oh, what do I already know about that? It's needed for reading comprehension. You ever start reading a, a big novel and in the first chapter, the author is mentioning all these five, six characters. And by the time you get to the third chapter, you're like, wait, who was Charlie? What was his story? So you go back to that first chapter. That's the working memory. So if you've got a weaker working memory, you need some hacks. And I do this. When I read a book, I have a sheet of paper. It's just got three columns. In the first column, it says the page number. In the second column, it has the name of the character that was introduced or the place or the important date or something that, that looks like it's going to be important. And then the third column is I just write a sentence or two. Like, oh, Charlie's the guy that, that when he was in school, got in trouble all the time, you know, whatever else. So then I can just like, when I'm in chapter five, I can go back and look because not every book has an index. But at any rate, so this is what working memory is. So when parents start to understand that, then when their kid has gone upstairs and come down without any of the things that I mentioned, rather than going into that anger and frustration and anxiety and all that mode, they go into, huh, I wonder why Johnny didn't come down with things. I wonder what I can do. And the rest is easy. You and, I, you and I know a million ways we can help build working memory, right? That strategy, right, of teaching a piece of ADHD to the parents. To me, that's the number one strategy. I had someone email me earlier in the week that was like, what's the number one thing that people with ADHD should be doing? And I was like, learn about ADHD. Because it's one of these disorders where you can get a lot of mileage out of just learning about it before you even need to go to a professional. It's not bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, some of the more severe mental health disorders where you really need support pretty quickly. 
with ADHD, you can get a lot of mileage out of learning about it. And at some point you're going to start to go, I know a lot about ADHD. How come I'm not implementing all the stuff that I know? And that's when you definitely need to go find a professional person to work with, which doesn't mean you can't start with a professional because do that. A big piece of my business is I've already read all those books. I've already watched all those videos and listened to all those podcasts. Like I can save you years of research and hundreds and thousands of dollars catching you up on ADHD in like two hours. I do, you know, some free workshops and some paid workshops. I have a free workshop coming up called top 10 strategies for parenting children and teens with ADHD and executive function challenges. In that workshop, what do you think the number one strategy is? Get educated about ADHD. You know, that's the core of my work is I really believe that we have to start with that education and then we can build the parenting. And so that's, that's the work that I do in the workshops because you need to understand because then when you do, you're already calming down your family system. You're calming down your own brain because you're not now in this deficit model. You're in this problem solving model. Okay, this is who my kid is. Let's figure out how to help him. Before we go deeper into that, sticking with the learning more about ADHD piece and getting that information, how do people find this workshop? I have a website, PTS Coaching. As I said, stands for Pathways to Success. On that website, you are going to see a few different sections. You'll see parents, students, professionals. In the parenting section, you'll see live webinars. It's called Calm and Connected Parenting Children and Teens. It's a seven-session workshop series. Each session is about an hour and a half. The first session is two hours. It's a deep dive into the social and emotional impact that ADHD and executive function challenges have on learning, motivation, behavior, and honestly, the whole family system. I want to circle back to a couple of things real quick. The first of which is the way that parents respond. Your example was the kid is supposed to be getting their stuff packed and they just haven't. Like, what's going on? Understanding why that's happening is important because it helps allay some of the fear. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it makes the fear a little bit worse than we have to talk about the fear, right? Because usually the reason parents are getting so angry is because there's a fear hiding underneath that anger. Absolutely. And it's a totally normal fear. It's, is my kid going to be like this forever? Is my kid never going to be able to pack a bag to leave the house? And the answer to that question is, no, your kid's not going to be like that forever. Are they always going to struggle? Yeah. Is it always going to be this pronounced? No, because they are going to grow up. They are going to mature. Their brain is going to develop. They are going to learn skills as we teach them those skills. So one of the things I encourage parents to do, as well as understanding ADHD, is also like pump the brakes. It's not about being 14. It's about a healthy, well-adjusted 26-year-old, right? Like, yes, we'll get there. It's not about ninth grade. It's just not. It's about or eighth grade or fourth grade or whatever grade. It's about raising a healthy, well-adjusted 26-year-old. Be patient. They'll get there. Yes, their peers are better at whatever the thing is than they are at the moment, but that will change. They'll catch up, but they're also going to struggle probably for the rest of their lives. And they need to learn how to do that. Very, very true. What you're talking about is failure to launch. The fear of failure to launch that the kid's going to end up back on their couch. And in fact, I mean, I get a lot of phone calls I get are, you know, I don't understand what happened. My kid did all, you know, through high school, did great, got great grades. 
got into the college of his dreams. And now he's home on academic suspension. What do I do? And that's when I talk about coachability, like is the kid ready to be coached? And the parenting role, because parenting in that older child is has its own challenges. But what happens is as the parent, they didn't necessarily allow their child to develop certain skills because of their own fear of, but I got to just get them through this grade. Okay, next year I'll teach them, but this grade, I got to get them through, I got to get them through. This is not about parental blame. I understand why the parent was doing that. They weren't having that full circle of support with the educators and the teachers and everything else. But at the same time, you can't just say, well, Johnny, now you're 18, I'm going to pull back all my supports because that doesn't work either. So the thing that I help parents do is your audience can't see me, but I'm holding up two hands, one higher than the other, sort of like a ladder. If your expectation is on the fifth ring up there, but their skill level is on the first ring, we can't expect them to jump up to where our expectation is. That's where independence is. We have to meet them where they are and help them walk up the ladder. And so that's, that's the work. That's the work. There's a book. Um, it's actually based on a commencement speech. I forget his name, an admiral called Make Your Bed. And his whole concept is if every morning you make your bed, at least you come home and you see you did something positive in the morning. It's a good way to start. One of the things I support parents in is, okay, so maybe making the bed, especially the way my mother expected it, where it was perfect, where you could bounce the quarter off of it. Maybe that expectation is not realistic, but you can still teach your kid to do something every morning. Maybe what that means is they fluff the blanket or fluff the pillow or take the clothes off the bed or, or you know, put the clothes in the hamper, just something so that they're developing that mental note of structure, strategy, you know, consistency. And then we can build because at the end of the day, we are trying to grow adults. We're not just trying to get compliant people. We're trying to help them think about what's going to make me successful in whatever success means, what's going to help me move you know, myself forward. Developing these things and cheering them on at the level that they're on. You know, one thing some, a, a kid once said to me is, I thought this was just mind-blowing. I think it was in like fifth grade. You know, he had finally achieved some level of success in, in math. And the teacher immediately said, great, now you can do this. And he said to me, I never get to celebrate that I succeeded. There's always something else I have to do. They're always looking at what's the next thing? What's the next thing? We got to let these kids feel successful, feel hope, feel joy, feel pride, and then cheer them on to the next step. And it's tricky, right? Because kids often feel weird when we let them celebrate. I know at least mine do. And all of the kids that I know by way of my kids, because I'm I'm the guy who's like, no, you did a great job on that. It's a random kid that I met four times, right? All of them look at me like, what? That's weird. Just happy for the way that you did whatever that thing was. Like you did a good job. I'm just telling you, but that's not communicated so much. So a lot of kids don't know how to handle it. My formula for praise is three N's, notice, name, nurture. When you are going to praise a child, and I'm going to say when you're going to praise an adult too, notice what they're doing, name what you see, nurture them with something nice. What does that look like? Rather than just saying, hey, nice job, 
say, hey, I noticed that you didn't give up on that math sheet. You went back and tried again. That shows you really care. Good for you. So it's not just about me, you made me proud. It's, it's helping them see what they should cheer on in themselves. Because sometimes, I mean, you know, you could have a kid who's fidgeting with their pencil and tapping their foot at the same time. And they stop, you know, you ask them to stop and they stop one and they're doing the other. Praise them for stopping, but you don't even, they don't even know what you're praising them for because like, oh, is it because I stopped this or because I didn't do this? or Like we have to tell them what they're being praised for so they can praise themselves. That's what I'm saying. Notice what you see, name it as specifically as you can, and then say something acknowledging about it. Nurture. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And what we're talking about right now is one of the other things I wanted to circle back on that's just kind of happened anyway. Kind of how do we tell the difference between enabling and supporting? And really, that's what we've been describing here, right? Is you're enabling if you're doing it for your kid with no end game, right? Sometimes we have to do the thing for the kid to teach them how to do it. And then we kind of step back and let them do it and they mess up and then we come back in and help again. And then eventually they're doing it on their own. But really, that's what we're talking about, right, is enabling is when you're doing it for the kid. You're not giving the kid the space to to learn these skills on their own. You're not giving them the dignity of that or the dignity of the struggle of figuring out that stuff. And sometimes that's because we don't want to see our kids struggle. It's hard. It's hard to watch our kids struggle. Supporting is giving them the dignity of the struggle. It's It's teaching them how to do these skills that they need to do, but also not doing it for them all the time. Um, in terms of enabling, enabling is doing something for someone else without a plan to help them do it for themselves. I may have a plan that's going to help Johnny remember his violin. But for right now, as a parent, I got to prioritize the fact that he's not making the bus first. I'm not enabling him when I end up taking his violin to the school that he forgot. I'm supporting him in the bigger picture for the moment that he's trying, he wants to be in violin and everything else. I've got a plan. I just can't prioritize it yet. So I'm not going to punish him, you know, make a big deal about you forgot your violin it again. I'm not ready to teach him yet. I may, when I bring it in for him, I may say, hey, Johnny, you know what? I'm bringing your violin. This is something we're going to work on. Let's worry about that next week or two weeks from now will come up with a plan to help you do it. It doesn't mean I won't talk to him and maybe a quick hack, but I won't stress on it. I won't make it a huge expectation because I've got other things right now I'm prioritizing. This is a potential pitfall for ADHD parents because if Johnny keeps forgetting his violin and that's causing him to be late for the bus and miss the bus, and now I have to drive Johnny to the bus and I don't have time to drive Johnny to the bus because I got to go to work, ah, right? If we're in that, that panic mode, then we might just solve the violin problem for Johnny because we're like, no, stop putting it up in your room. It's got to stay in the living room or whatever. But it's coming from a place of anxiety and it's coming from a place of emergency as opposed to stopping and, and breathing and letting it take up some space, just not in the morning when their time is of the essence, right? People with ADHD, going back to that working memory stuff, we often don't remember that there's a crisis every morning until we get to the morning and suddenly the violin is gone, but we don't think about it when we come home from work. So we're not addressing those morning crises 
because we only think of them in the morning and then we're usually solving them because we don't have time to problem solve them. But if we can take some strategy that's going to help us remember this violin crisis that keeps happening, put a sticky note on your steering wheel, send yourself a text. I don't care. Whatever is going to help you remember it at five o'clock at night when everyone's home. That's what you want. You want to remember what the morning looks like and be able to talk about it in the evening or over the weekend so that as a family, we can work together as a team and problem solve this scenario so the kid can see what's that problem solving process like. They can contribute to it. They can come up with their own solutions and tell us why ours stink. We want that to happen. And it's hard hard to do if we're in panic mode. As someone who does not have ADHD, which I know is is unusual in this field because many people do go into it because they understood their own experience and then came up with their hacks and then want to help others. I was the one in my family that didn't. So I was working on the hacks with everyone else. What you're talking to is the problem solving, the structure, the routine. And that's why as I do my parenting work, I literally developed it in a structure and a strategy so that that's why in the seven sessions, each session, we're really literally building a new house where, where calm is the foundation because without the calm, nothing's going to happen. And then we build on each piece after that with tools, with strategies and whatnot, because it is really hard when you do have ADHD yourself to parent and you need your own supports. You need, you know, it's like the classic thing I always say when I do teacher training, when I tell teachers that, and I think this statistic is under, but about 50% of, of kids with ADHD have at least one parent who has ADHD, right? And I say to teachers, why is that important for you guys to know? Because the teacher's saying, hey, do me a favor, go, go home and help Johnny organize his materials because Johnny's having a really hard time. And the parent is looking at the teacher and saying, who's coming home and organizing me? I don't know what you're talking about, Cindy. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But so that's why it's so important as we support parents to realize we need to support parents in their parenting, but we also need to support them in their own internal life with their own challenges. In my parent groups, I talk about that, right? I say like, we want to set reasonable expectations here. I, I say to my groups from the jump, As I'm talking to people who might want to come in, I'm like, I am not a magic bullet. You are not going to go through these groups and have the ADHD problems magically get cured. It's just not a thing. There's still going to be struggles. Things are still going to be hard. Set a reasonable expectation, whether it's 10% better or 20% better. Like, Let's improve gradually over time because when we try to just change everything at once, especially if you're an ADHD parent, that's a house of cards and that's going to fall apart. Like, Pick one thing, work on that. As that gets easier to do, pick something else. And one of the things that I love about even just the name of your groups is that it harkens back to mine, right? Like we, we connected, you're on the show because we did a summit together and we're sort of like, oh, we have very similar thoughts about what to do with ADHD and parenting. And my groups are focused on two things that are, one of them is the same, exactly the same thing. And the other thing is the same thing that you're doing, except phrased differently. So when I talk to people about my groups, I say that the two things we're mainly working on is reducing the overall anxiety in the household and improving familial connection, which is really just calm and connected, right? Like that's, 
if there's less anxiety than you're calm, like that's, it's the same thing. I just didn't have a cool alliterative name for it. I just call them the ADHD essentials parent groups, but it's the same two ideas. My motivation for that is if we reduce the overall anxiety in the home, the ADHD stuff gets easier to handle. Sometimes I make a deal out of it and sometimes I don't, but improving connection is really a method to reduce anxiety. If we're, if we're feeling more connected then we're, we have less anxiety. So really my groups are about managing anxiety. But that connection piece is such a critical component. How do you find that parents respond to, to that common connectedness for your groups? What afterwards, how are they, or during, is there anything specific that they struggle with or anything that like, you know, this thing is a, is a home run. It's not even a triple and it's amazing. What's that look like? Oh my God. Such home runs. The biggest home runs are parents start to feel hope. And they start to see change. They start to build their relationship back. They get to have conversations with their kids and their kids talk to them. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. If you can create a connection with your child so they can be vulnerable with you and say, mom, I didn't do my homework because it's so confusing and it's so hard and, and I'm just exhausted. And, and I just, and whatever those things are, Without the fear that you're going to say, well, well kitty, you got to do it because that's what the teacher assigned. That's not what your kid needs to hear right now. It's not that we don't have to figure out how to help Johnny do his work. Of course we do. But right now, we need Johnny to show up with us. We need Johnny to want to go to school. I've got so many parents who are at the point where the kids just don't want to go to school. So I don't care if they don't get a great grade in certain classes this year. I care, as you were saying, that when they're 26 years old, they're kicking butt in life, that they're feeling good about themselves. I want a kid to love learning, period. I don't care that they love school. That will come. When I went to graduate school to become a mental health counselor, I was like a kid in a candy store because I was studying stuff that I loved and I couldn't wait to learn it all. When I was in undergraduate school studying business, it was like, yeah, okay, you know, LIFO, FIFO, accounting, all that other stuff. Like, why am I here? What am I doing? And, and whatnot. You want the kid to find their passion. And they're not going to find it right away. A lot of kids aren't going to find it until, like many of us adults, until years later. But if they are optimistic about themselves and their ability to learn and their ability to conquer and find it and all of that, I've succeeded as a parent. That's all I really need to do. One of the things I talk about in my groups is the importance of questions and how questions can help build executive functioning skills. And, and really going back to the language we've been using right now, questions are supporting, answers are enabling. And questions are a little bit harder. It's a little more frustrating if your kid is like, I don't know what the capital of North Dakota is. And you're like, well, what resources do you have available to you to figure that out? And the kid's like, ah, just tell me, right? If they turn and say, well, dad, you're a resource. I'm like, that's true. The capital of North Dakota is blah, right? Like, that's fine. Yes, listeners, that means I don't know what the capital of North Dakota is. Probably should have used a better state um, <laughs> like New Jersey or something. That one's Trenton. But throwing those questions at them, the reason questions are useful is I can end up in a totally different environment, in a totally new situation. Answers don't help me, but questions do because questions will help me get to an answer that I can find on my own when mom and dad aren't there and I don't know anyone around 
that's why I love the question of what resources do you have available to you to help you to help you out with this? Like, what do you got? Back in the day, of course, we went to libraries to find things. Now we just say, hey, Google. But it's knowing how to learn. It's knowing how to find the answer. But you're not going to be able to do that if in your mind, asking a question shows weakness. Advocacy is a developmental skill. It cannot be an expectation. I'm going to say that again because I know that's sort of out of left field. Advocacy is a developmental skill. Whether you're five years old, 15 years old, 30 years old, not everybody feels comfortable speaking up, asking for help, asking for directions, knowing how to write that email to the teacher, knowing how to say to the presenter, hey, you know what? There's a lot of muffling back there. Would it be okay if you you know, stopped for a moment and moved where you're standing? Not everybody feels that comfort level. So teaching your kids how to advocate for themselves rather than expecting them to. That's where I was talking about that, that difference you know, with independence, being on the fifth rung of the ladder versus the first. Just because in fifth grade, they should know how to ask the teacher for help. If they don't, don't punish them. Teach them how. Help them feel okay asking. While we're kind of playing with this concept that has flirted in and out of this conversation, Developmental expectations and understanding what are appropriate developmental expectations for your kid is critical for any parent. For ADHD parents, knowing or remembering, depending on where you are with your ADHD learning journey, knowing or remembering that ADHD is a developmental disorder. So your kid with ADHD is lagging behind developmentally, in turn, this case, brain wise, brain development. They're lagging behind their peers by. The old general rule was one to three years. Russell Barkley has come out and said it's 30% since then. 30% is really hard to do with a base 12 system because we've got 12 months a year. So it doesn't like the math isn't easy. I'm kind of like, yeah, one to three years is close enough. And also experientially for me as a coach, it feels pretty accurate. Like it doesn't seem like it's totally out of left field. So like take that perspective with your kid. And when it comes to finding out, well, what is developmentally appropriate? How do I know what my kids should be able to do or not do and what's going on with them at various ages? There's a book called Yardsticks that I was just looking around. I couldn't find, find it. Usually it's on my desk, but it's not. And I don't remember the author's name, but it's called Yardsticks. It's aimed at teachers. So just know that it's a little more school environment and it's school age. So I think it goes from like five years old to like 14, 15, it's a 16. Phenomenal maybe. book. It's great to understand what kind of social expectations to expect. What kind of, like, if you give them instructions, are they going to be able to follow through with three instructions or can you only give them two? Like that kind of stuff. And then your mileage may vary. See if your kid is fitting that description or not. And if they aren't, that's okay. Don't get scared. Just adjust your stuff to fit where your kid is. One of the things that's interesting is my belief. And honestly, it's the first chapter of my book, my first book, Aki's to Parenting, is parent the child you have, not the child you thought you'd have, not the child you wish you'd have, not the child you'd have if your mother-in-law got her way, but that child you're blessed with. Most parents, unless they've got that very social kid and they're around other kids all the time at the parent's house, most parents don't see their child in the context of other children. So they don't 
really know what is developmentally typical. So what do they do? They compare it to themselves and their memory, which is distorted, or they compare it to their older child or their younger child and say, oh, see, this one's way ahead or this one's way behind. Not necessarily. You're comparing it to such a small population. You need to ask the experts, and like you're saying, that book or whatever, and see what is, what is a typical developmental expectation and what, more importantly, is creating your stress around where they are and how we're going to help calm your stress down so you can support them. Yeah. Um, true story time. So my kids are in seventh grade. And I homeschooled them last year, but they're back in school now. And I met with my kids' teachers and we had a whole conversation. It was, it was interesting to be as informed as I am about my kids' academic performance because I spent the whole year homeschooling them. So it was a different meeting than I've ever had because I was like, nah, this is what my kids are like as students. And the teachers were all like, yep, I'm seeing that. Yep, yep, yep. But I'm hearing from the teachers that like, you know, they're missing some homework assignments and they're like not turning stuff in on the interwebs and all that stuff. And I said to him, and I'm, I'm giving this question to the audience because I think it's a really important question that we're, we need to be asking. I said to the teachers, relative to their peers, how are they doing in that area? Because it's really easy as a parent for me to be like, oh my God, my kids aren't turning homework in. They're the worst. They're falling apart. Everything's going to die, right? That like fear-based emotional response of disaster thinking that I talked about earlier. But this question well, how are they doing relative to their peers? Tamp some of that down, potentially. And the information I got was, nah, they're pretty much in line with their peers in terms of just about everybody is missing assignments here and there. And the reason that question is especially critical right now is, Cindy, as you mentioned, we're often thinking back to when we were kids and what were, what were we doing in seventh grade and how did I do and all that stuff. And not a single one of us lived through a global pandemic while we were in middle school or elementary school or high school. That is changing and impacting our kids' performance in school. Point of example, the majority of kids, at least on this one particular team, are not getting all their homework done. And that's normal. Like, and, and by not getting it all done, I mean like, I don't know, two, three assignments, four assignments, not like not doing any of it, but they're missing some stuff. That's the norm you might be thinking the norm is everyone's getting their homework done. And maybe it was five years ago, but it's not now because we're having these additional stressors. And sometimes like homework doesn't matter. It just, it's not as important as other stuff. Well, that will be another whole podcast. Oh yeah. I, that's a soapbox. I'll die on. <laughs> that's, that's a hill I'll die on, <laughs> but yeah, but it's just important. It's just important to make sure that we ask the experts, right? Like you're seeing 20 to 100 kids as a teacher every day. I'm seeing one, two, three, however many kids I have. So find out from the teacher, how do they do compared to their peers and have that information to use? And with that said, just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? That whole area of homework. I run a workshop called Managing Homework, Tips, Tools, and Strategies, and What's Your Role? It supports parents in managing the homework process. And it's a huge, huge area because I don't think that we teach kids how to manage the homework process enough. So I didn't put the date on my website yet. It will be up there within the next two days, but people can get to me and get to my website 
If you want to email me, if you have some follow-up questions, email cindy at ptscoaching.com. If you want to look on the website, again, it's PTS Coaching, but the workshop that I'm mentioning is called Managing Homework. You'll also find information right on the homepage about my free presentations and also my Common Connected Workshop series. And also I do train, if you know any professionals who want to become parent coaches, and by by professionals, I also mean professional parents, parents who feel like they've done this journey and they're kind of almost at the end of that journey. You know, we're always going to be parents no matter how old your kids are, but they feel like, okay, now I'm ready to give back and, and help other parents go through this parenting journey. Or if you're a therapist or speech language pathologist, educator, whatever, I do train other professionals to become parent coaches. And it's a really awesome, cool training. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need. Thank you.